Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. When you think about prominent residents in the history of Hartford, Mark Twain or Harriet Beecher Stowe may come to mind. But the Hartford Public Library has launched a summer program to highlight Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people who are also part of the city's history. Later, we'll talk with Jasmine Augusto about the library's Hartford Changemakers program and its focus on public art to help change the narrative. Also, in just a few weeks, colleges will begin to welcome back students for the fall semester. We'll hear from a UConn professor and psychologist who studies public health and social media. Dr. Sherry Pagato asked students their feelings on quarantines, contact tracing, and mask wearing. She'll tell us what she learned and how it could help campus leaders and students better communicate. First, we talk about the importance of continued testing in this pandemic. Connecticut's rate of COVID-19 transmission is low compared to other states, and that's the result of a number of factors, including social or physical distancing, wearing masks, and contact tracing. But what does testing in Connecticut look like right now? Joining us with more is Patrick Scahill, a reporter at Connecticut Public Radio who covers science and the environment. Patrick, Patrick welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. So we look at the the data of residents who've died from COVID-19, a majority of them have been nursing home residents. I wanted to start to talk to you about the testing guidelines for this at-risk population. What does it look like right now within nursing homes in our state? Yeah, so right now, more than uh, 60% of uh, the state's COVID-19 fatalities uh, were residents of uh, nursing homes. Uh, The guidelines right now, uh, back in early June, uh, Governor Lamont had uh, ordered basically weekly mandatory tests for uh, nursing home residents uh, and staff members. Uh, Those uh, tests were slated to um, begin no later than the week starting uh, June 14th, and were supposed to extend for the duration of the civil preparedness and uh, public health emergency. Um, but uh, the what happened a few days after that executive order went into effect was the governor issued another executive order saying um, if a facility is COVID free for two weeks, they can uh, stop testing. Uh, and then there was a caveat uh, to that order as well, which was if a resident or a staff member Uh, test positive, the cycle has to start over again. Um, So it's been a bit of a a confusing process uh, throughout this whole experience. Do we know why the administration changed uh, the guidelines for for testing nursing home residents and staff? Well, the administration has said that uh, the change is in line with federal guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, And, you know, one thing to remember, uh, as with everything COVID-related, is that the time scale is so dramatically different than anything else uh, government has really dealt with before. Uh, days can make a huge difference in, in how the science changes and how policy changes on this. So CDC guidance has been changing throughout the duration of this pandemic for testing. Uh, and the state says that uh, when they updated uh, the governor's executive order, they were just uh, keeping step with that change in guidance. 
When we think about uh, when the governor first said that nursing home residents and staff should be tested weekly, that sounds like a lot of tests. I'm just wondering, um, you know, how much is this costing? Has that been part of the shift as well, Patrick? What do we know? So uh, the short answer is it is costing a lot of money. <laughs> um, the, the longer answer is, you know, the state would say this was not a move that was driven by cost, um, but the costs are real uh, to this. Um, you know, tens of millions of dollars uh, for uh, really just weeks of testing. Um, so uh, what we do know is that uh, we have several, uh, I, I've obtained several contracts from the state uh, on this topic. Um, and some of those contracts show that the state is spending nearly $20 million for um, less than three months of, of testing work. Um, so there are, there are costs here. Right now, the federal government is paying for this, mm -hmm. but uh, it's been unclear how long that is, is actually going to last. And this was through the coronavirus relief fund that, uh, again, that a lot of states were getting money from the federal government to help with the, the new costs of dealing with this pandemic, Patrick? Right. Yes. So this was uh, money that was authorized uh, through the Coronavirus Relief Fund, which was um, put into place through the through the CARES Act. Mm. Uh, before we talk more about uh, who is uh, processing these tests and the costs, you know, we, we began the segment talking about, you know, I think it's more than 60 percent of deaths here in Connecticut were mm -hmm. from nursing home residents. Now that we know that cases are low in our state compared to uh, April and compared to other states, uh, what 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 can you tell us about what it's looking like in nursing homes today in our state? Uh, a lot better um, in terms of uh, the, the amount of positive uh, results that are coming back and in terms of the amount of um, fatalities that have been happening there. Uh, it's certainly a lot better. However, um, you know, uh, the argument that's been made uh, by, by workers unions, for example, um, in response to the Lamont administration changing uh, the testing guidelines for staff is that, well, it's better now, but it, it it might not stay that way, and we need to we need to remain vigilant. We need to ensure that we are testing staff members on a regular basis that are working there, um, because uh, people could be asymptomatic and bring COVID back into a facility. And if we're not testing for that, how would we know until someone did test positive? Um, so it's it's looking better currently, but uh, people are still definitely urging caution on this issue. Uh, meanwhile, you've been reporting on some investigations from the federal level of Connecticut nursing homes where there have been uh, deaths of at least three elder care workers. What can you tell us about those investigations? Uh, so they're ongoing right now. These are uh, investigations uh, done through the Occupational Safe and Health, Health Administration, uh, or OSHA. Um, like you said, uh, there are uh, three facilities that are currently uh, being uh, investigated. Um, and uh, there's also investigations going on at a psychiatric hospital uh, here uh, in Connecticut, Natchock Hospital, mm -hmm. uh, an investigation going on at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital. Um, I would expect that more of these probably will come. Um, but there isn't a, a ton of detail that I can provide uh, on each of these investigations just because they're, they're still open cases. Mm -hmm. And is the state tracking how many nursing home or elder care workers have died from COVID-19, Patrick? Uh, the state is tracking it. Uh, they're now saying that um, at least four workers at nursing homes uh, have died uh, due to complications related to COVID. Um, numbers on this are still pretty tricky. I would urge caution with any of these numbers. Uh, workers unions have told me numbers that are higher um, and state reports are also not accounting for uh, numbers that we've confirmed through our own reporting at other assisted uh, 
living facilities. So um, I would say at least four, probably more um, uh, at this point, but it's just, it's, it's a tough thing to actually pin down exactly because again, everything is just moving so mm -hmm. fast on this topic. You're hearing Patrick Scahill here on Where We Live. He's science and environment reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. We wanted to learn more about his reporting on testing, uh, COVID-19 testing in our state. Uh, you mentioned uh, the high costs, uh, Patrick, in just three months of this pandemic uh, that the federal government is helping the state of Connecticut pay. But in terms of vendors uh, that the state is contracted to, you found some interesting uh, information about how, uh, again, the state has allowed these vendors to redact pricing information for a testing. Why is that? So the state has uh, contracted with uh, at least uh, seven vendors for COVID-19 testing. Uh, we requested the contracts when we got them. They were very, very long, very, very expansive, extremely comprehensive. Uh, however, the one thing that was redacted, the one main thing that was redacted was the price that the state is paying for each test. Um, what we do know is the average price that the state is paying for a COVID-19 test. Um, across all of those contracts. Uh, that's about $117. Um, but the state has refused to release uh, the exact pricing information. The state is saying that uh, they're doing this essentially in the interest of taxpayers, saying that if we were to um, post publicly what we're paying each vendor at a negotiated rate to run a COVID-19 test, if that information is public, anyone who tries to price into this with a new contract is going to basically say, well, uh, give me what you paid, give me the most that you're going to pay. And I know the most that you're going to pay because I can see everything that you paid, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and that's something called shadow pricing. Um, uh, so the comptroller's office has said that we don't want to release that to guard against that. Um, our argument as reporters has been, well, it's taxpayer money paying for this. Uh, it's in a public contract. It should be public, public knowledge. It is interesting uh, when we talk about the, the time frame in your stories in terms of uh, the state uh, communicating with these vendors about redacting uh, certain information, these contracts. Uh, you did a story in early July where it appeared the state was really bending over backwards to allow uh, Quest uh, to redact cost information after it missed the deadline. Uh, why that approach, Patrick? Um. I mean, I, I, I would dare not try to answer uh, the question why. I, I can tell you what we know, which is that uh, there was a contractual deadline for Quest to post uh, their redactions. They missed it. Uh, the state sent several follow-up emails soliciting those redactions. Um, and eventually, when I got the contract, the price was redacted. Um, why they did it, uh, you'd have to ask them, I suppose. But I, I can say we, we have filed a complaint with the Freedom of Information Commission um, uh, to fight these redactions, though, because, again, our, our argument has been that uh, these are public contracts and this is public information. Mm, that is an important point to stress. Uh, when we think about, uh, in your reporting, when we think about how uh, Connecticut uh, pays vendors and other situations, again, uh, what have you found in terms of how these uh, contracts disclose uh, the cost uh, for these different services? Does it, has it been the approach been different, Patrick? Um, so the approach has been different in other um, uh, purchase orders that I've gotten from the state, um, particularly with regards to personal protective equipment or, or PPE. Um, I've obtained uh, dozens of purchase orders. Uh, I think all of them that I have do have the per unit price for something like uh, face masks or, or hospital gowns. Um, that hasn't been redacted. Whether or not this is common practice throughout all of state contracts, um, I, I don't know. Again, we're focusing on this one thing. Um, 
but uh, I have gotten per unit pricing information in, in other um, documents that I've obtained from the state during this pandemic. Mm. Uh, we're hearing that wait times uh, to receive COVID-19 test results are now stretching uh, longer than just a couple of days as we see cases surging around uh, our country and other states. Do we know how that's impacting wait times uh, for vendors in the state to process these tests uh, in Connecticut, Patrick? Well, um, in some of the uh, newer contracts that I've received from some of the care partners that the state is working with to do testing for staff and residents at nursing homes. There's actually language in those contracts uh, that will say um, something to the effect of due to uh, stresses on the national testing system, uh, you may expect delays in getting test results. And uh, there are clauses in uh, at least one of those contracts that says, normally we would wanna turn these uh, test results around in 24 hours. Um, However, due to these uh, nationwide delays, it, it might be 72 hours. So we are starting to see some of um, what's happening nationally uh, get reflected in contracting language that we're seeing here in the state. Patrick Scahill, again, is a reporter for WMPR Connecticut Public Radio. He covers science and the environment. We'll tweet out some links to your stories about testing here in our state. Patrick, thanks for joining us today. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, there have been a lot of new guidelines uh, that colleges and universities have developed for returning college students this fall. How do students feel about the measures needed to keep, camp- to keep campuses safe? We're going to hear from a psychologist and UConn professor who studies public health and social media about what she learned after interviewing students. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In just a few weeks, colleges will begin to welcome back students for the fall semester. How do students feel about the new guidelines on campus? Dr. Cherry Pagato is a UConn professor and clinical psychologist who studies public health and social media. She asked students their feelings on quarantines, contact tracing, and mask wearing. She joins us now to tell us what she learned from those interviews and focus groups. Uh, Dr. Cherry Pagato, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And again, you're a UConn professor in the Department of Allied Health Sciences and Clinical Psychologist. Uh, I wanted to clarify uh, the work that you were doing uh, necessarily wasn't on behalf of uh, UConn administrators, but tell us more about um, how these working groups uh, were convened and uh, how you reached out to students. Yeah, so we convened a behavioral science working group um, within our research institute um, called NCHIP at UConn. And our group is basically a collection of behavioral scientists. And we were tasked with thinking about this from a behavioral science lens. And so what I mean by that is a lot of the safety measures that are being considered um, require behavior, human behavior. Um, And so we have to think about how would we get people to engage in all of these different safety measures. And so I had already been doing some focus groups as part of a National Science Foundation grant of undergraduates about how the shutdown uh, affected them. And so it seemed a natural extension to shift a little bit and, and ask folks what they think about 
all of the plans that are coming down the pike for the fall and coming back on campus. And so uh, we asked them about all of the different safety measures, um, including the pre-semester quarantine, which is where students would need to come back on campus 14 days early to quarantine. We asked them about contact tracing, symptom tracking, testing, wearing masks, and the whole nine yards um, to see what their thoughts were. We approached this very much from a co-design perspective. And what I mean by that is we first asked them what would make each of these things very difficult? So let's just kind of go down that road. What would make this hard? What could happen where it wouldn't work? And then we shift the conversation to, okay, how do we avoid those things from happening mm -hmm. and come up with some solutions to those things? And so uh, it was wonderful to have students brainstorming with us about that because they thought of so many things that I probably would not have thought of. I'm much older than they are. I'm not in their shoes right now. Um, so I, I felt like this was a, a useful process to figure out how we could make this work. Mm. Can you give me an idea of what some of the responses were? Again, this was an informal project, but when we think about pre-semester quarantine, what did students tell you about how they thought that was going to work? Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. So pre-semester quarantine was a tricky one. You know, they had a lot of concerns about it. When, when asked kind of, what would make this difficult? They said, you know, it's hard to imagine sitting in my dorm by myself because they would be alone in the dorm um, for two weeks. School hasn't started yet, so it's not that I could occupy myself with homework. Um, so what sort of activities would I have this? You know, I, I, I would, I, it might be very boring. Um, and knowing that my friends who I have not seen since March are not very far away, there's the temptation to want to engage with them mm -hmm. and hang out with them. And it might also be uncomfortable in the dorms. It could be hot. Not all dorms have air conditioning. So it's, uh, they felt like there could be a lot of temptations and they could imagine their peers breaking quarantine in order to socialize or maybe even being tempted to drive back home for those who may not live that far. So they were very honest about how this could be hard. But in terms of solutions, they said, you know, if there were activities to keep us busy, that would really help. And if there were ways that we could socialize that were safe, that would really help. Um, and we talked about ways to do that online. So all kinds of creative ideas about how people could socialize online, like having floor meetings online, having trivia nights, um, all kinds of ideas that were both fun or productive, like um, research experiences that could be online. In fact, my lab, we're gonna, we're gonna do a two week research boot camp. Uh, so that will keep students busy who are gonna be on campus during that quarantine period. Yeah. So they were kind of looking for, you know, how can I stay busy? Um, and, and that made a lot of sense. They were also interested in finding out more ways to kind of use outside spaces if they could um, be outside a little bit more in ways that are socially distanced, they were interested in that. And so I think kind of how it's created and what the parameters are will be very important and, and communicating that them, all of those parameters to them as well. Because I, one thing I noticed is they weren't quite sure, and I think a lot of people aren't, it's not just young people, what quarantine means. This mm -hmm. is a new concept for all of us. And, and so what are the do's and don'ts of quarantine? I, I think just some really specifics about that could be, could be very useful.
And when we think about the different populations on campus, uh, Sherry, you know, college is a social experience. And when we think about uh, behaviors, you know, it, I mean, it might be one thing to say, you, know, you need to do this for a certain amount of time, but knowing how young people are, um, it might be difficult to keep that kind of behavior going as the semester continues. Absolutely. And students pointed that out. And I, and I thought that was really wise of them to point out this sort of trend of behavioral fatigue. So whenever we're taking on new behaviors over time, we wear out. And I think we saw that with all of us when we shut down, we were starting to wear out. Um, and, you know, people were in a hurry to reopen. So we have to sort of anticipate that anything that is put in place at any university that, you know, after a few weeks or a month or two, we're, we may see a fatigue happening, in which case we kind of need to refresh things in some way, whether that is new messaging, um, more opportunities for conversation around how to make this work, um, new activities to make it fun. Um, but I think whatever we're doing to put it in place, we have to make sure that that doesn't fatigue because we'll need to keep boosting it at, as, as the semester goes on. So people are reminded and, and don't sort of fall off the wagon as time goes by. You're hearing Dr. Sherry Pagato on Zoom talking with us here on Where We Live. She's a UConn professor in the Department of Allied Health Scientists, also a clinical psychologist. As we talk about some focus groups that she and her colleagues uh, conducted of UConn students about how they're feeling with these uh, new protocols in place uh, for campus reopening in this pandemic, you can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We talked about um, the quarantining, uh, but I'm curious about what how college students perceive, the ones you spoke to, uh, perceive the uh, necessity of wearing a mask and also um, if someone falls uh, ill, um, how they comply with contact tracing, Sherry? Great question. So let's talk about mask wearing. Um, I was encouraged that students seemed very open to wearing masks on campus. Um, They didn't see too much of a problem wearing it in in in-person type environments courses, labs, and things like that. They were honest, though, that the challenge would lie when they're socializing on their own, whether it's on campus or off campus. And they they pointed out that, you know, that really tends to be driven by social norms. What they're observing over the summer is that mask wearing in their age group has been inconsistent in social situations. And so then the pressure is sort of on if other people aren't wearing masks, then, then you might not want to be the only one wearing a mask. They pointed out how masks can interfere with their ability to socialize. So for example, those with hearing impairments, um, they don't have the ability to read lips um, or maybe you need to talk louder. It's hard to hear people. So, um, So those were the kinds of things that they talked about that I think we all experienced. So again, a lot of what they said, I don't think is necessarily just particular to young adults, as Mm -hmm. I see adults of all ages, you know, struggling with these things. And so in terms of solving that issue around mask wearing, when young people are on their own time, I really think we, we have to think about how all of us can help encourage that social norm. Obviously, the universities can help with that, but also I think parents and young people attempting to hold each other accountable. And they talked about that. They said, this is something that we really need to do. We need to hold each other accountable. And I, and I felt like 
they had a very mature perspective from from that point of view. Um, but honest at the same time around, it's hard when you're in a group of people who aren't doing it. And so it sort of can sometimes depend on your social status in that group. Um, so I think helping students have those conversations of what if I do show up to something and no one's wearing masks, what do I say? Um, I don't wanna come off like a jerk. Um, so what's the language that I could use um, to get people to wear the mask or at least um, to where I could put on my mask and not feel embarrassed. Um, so how could they have those conversations? So th those are some things I think we could help them with. Mm -hmm. It's especially important to understand how young people feel about uh, these guidelines, these protocols, uh, Sherry, because you know we're hearing, even here in Connecticut, that when you're looking at cases of COVID uh, within uh, age groups, uh, cases are rising among 20 to 29 year olds. Uh, the governor's office saying that this age group saw the highest number of new cases early Earlier this month. And so when we think about uh, on-campus activities might be easier to enforce mask wearing versus off-campus, uh, again, those strategies of how to deal with those uh, different social situations are important, Sherry. Absolutely. And we have lots of literature in other areas of health, for example, on condom use around yeah. how do you have conversations, asking your partner to engage in the safety behavior. So I think there are a lot of insights we can draw from other sort of similar um, type of behavioral scenarios. You also asked about contact mm -hmm. tracing and now there are lots of mobile apps um, that help with the contact tracing. And so we did talk a lot about contact tracing. And one thing that was interesting that came up was in a, on a campus, it, it's smaller than a, a city. And so if you come up positive and there's then the contact trace and your contacts are contacted, obviously confidentially, your name is never mentioned when your contacts are contacted. Um, but there is this fear that people would still find out that I was infected and might I be shamed for that? Might people be upset with me? Um, will I get shamed on social media? Um, will rumors go around? So they were concerned about the social implications uh, of that. Um, they, it was interesting because they didn't feel like this is something that they would engage in. It was something more that they were worried about happening to them. And so I'm hoping that um, maybe that wouldn't happen. And, you know, we could try to head that off at the pass by sort of destigmatizing infection in ways to in sort of offset people from wanting to sort of hit each other over the head, you know, if they get infected or, or be very upset at you because now, I'm quarantined because you got infected and I was near you. Um, so I think we have to really try to be mindful that that doesn't kind of spiral in a negative way um, to where if it does feel like there's going to be a lot of shame around infection, whenever there's shame, it drives behavior underground. So, so we really have to think about how to sort of prevent that shame. Some ideas that came up were, you know, maybe when a student gets infected, um, there might be one who wants to tell their story of what happened and the lessons learned and to sort of come out and talk about it in a way that everyone can sort of learn from that. And so that, and I liked that idea. And I've seen some of that happening on social media, people all different ages where they say, you know, oh, I got infected and, you know, I, I, I'll be honest you know, I was around someone who only quarantined for 12 days and 
you know, I thought 12 would be okay, but I was wrong. Lesson learned. And I hope you all can learn that lesson as well. So those sort of stories I think are impactful and, and might kind of reduce the shame factor and also be a, an opportunity for people to learn um, how people are getting infected and, and the importance of not cutting corners on those recommendations. That's interesting. So when we think about compliance or getting people uh, to follow through with contact tracing, uh, this idea that you want to emphasize empathy rather than punishment, that might get people thinking more about how this is good for for everyone and not just how this is going to impact me individually. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a lot of talk to the effect of empathy of really, I mean, I think young people do want to know that we understand their predicament. I mean, they've lost graduations. They're losing a significant chunk of their college experience. They're socially isolated. You know, they're single for the most part. So they don't have, you know, a partner that they're always with. Um, they'll be leaving their families to, you know, some of them to come back on campus. So they're, the social support in their lives is, you know, become very restricted. They're, they're going through something very hard too. And, they sometimes cave to temptations. And um, so I, I see on social media a lot of rhetoric that saying things like, oh, young people are so irresponsible. They just don't care about anything but themselves. And I feel like that's really unfair. Um, and it's super unproductive. Um, that's, it's, it's never useful um, to kind of go that route if you, if you really want to help everyone sort of get on the same team. And quite honestly, adults of all ages have caved to temptations when it comes to breaking some of these rules. And so um, so I think beating up on young adults is, is not going to do us any favors and it's not going to help us figure out how we can all, you know, bring our best game, you know, to this situation for the time being. You've gotten some good information from these focus groups with students. And so uh, what are some steps that universities can take to uh, consider uh, the, the way students feel about uh, you know, going back to school in a very uh, different time, hoping to go back to normal at some point, maybe spring semester, but in the meantime, uh, effective ways that the universities can communicate with students about these protocols and why they're important? Yeah, I mean, I, I really like a lot of the things going on at UConn where students are really being engaged in the process in all different ways. You know, I mentioned the focus groups that we did, but there were also surveys and town halls and, you know, student leaders are being engaged. So any ways that students can be engaged in this process. I know at a lot of universities, like the, the information coming out is sort of trickling out because everything has been very fluid and ever-changing and um, lots of work this summer to get everything decided and worked out. Um, so a, a strong communication strategy, I think, is important, too, so everybody's on the same page. And I'll say not just students, but also parents, um, bringing parents into the mix and listening and understanding how they feel and their ideas on how to implement some of these measures that we need students to participate in. So I, I really feel like it's kind of an all hands on deck um, where, you know, engaging these different stakeholders will be very important. I understand that your research uh, 
looks at how to use technology to better public health. And so thinking about how uh, the general public has used social media during uh, the pandemic and and what you have learned in your research, I mean, what are some areas that you uh, want to focus on or think that people should uh, examine as we continue in this pandemic, Sherry? Yeah, so I've been very interested in the infodemic aspect of this pandemic, which refers to the misinformation or the confusing information environment online, and certainly social media contributes to that. Um, obviously, the, the science is evolving, and so sometimes what our scientists are saying is gradually changing as they're learning. That can be confusing to a lot of people, um, but then there's also a bunch of other voices in the mix that are saying things that are just simply not true. And so then it becomes very difficult for the general public to understand what is correct, what is incorrect. Um, and, and for that reason, it becomes difficult to know what I should be doing as an individual because everything seems to be changing. So we are working on a number of projects looking at how we can um, deliver clear messaging, particularly around um, the vaccine. This is something that I've been very interested in is vaccine misinformation and how can we understand how hesitant people might be about this upcoming vaccine and what we can do from a messaging standpoint to help people feel comfortable about it. Obviously, they are working very hard and very quickly to, to have a vaccine come out. Um, people may have more concerns maybe about this vaccine than other vaccines because of that. So how can we message around the vaccine to, to make it clear sort of what the process is and um, that people feel comfortable with the science that's coming out and that they understand the process and that it is the usual process that we would take. It's just a lot of resources have been put towards it that's allowed it to go um, more quickly. Um, so that's a big concern of mine that we'll, you know, we'll see more about, I guess, in the next year or so as that vaccine comes out. Um, obviously, we, we want uh, a high level of uptake of that vaccine in order to to kind of get to the other side of this eventually. Uh, right now, people are anticipating, again, that colleges and universities in our state will be reopening on campus, will be reopening this fall. I'm just wondering, as we move forward, everyone wants to focus on the first couple of weeks and how it goes. But in terms of what the university's role uh, is in helping continue to educate the students as a semester continues, as information about this pandemic changes, what should be uh, their role, Sherry? Yes, I think universities have a strong role in making sure that they are delivering the public health messages to the uh, university community, the students, um, so that they are able to get that accurate messaging out there, knowing that, you know, all around in social media, there's all kinds of confusing messaging, but if the university has a role in, and I see a lot of the university social media feeds putting out you know, good information about COVID and how to protect yourself from it and some of the latest science. So I think that's really, really useful and will be very, very important to sort of keep those messages um, there and, and have a lot of opportunity for students and other folks on campus to ask questions I also think bringing faculty into this um, to where faculty have good information so that, because they're often the interface for students. I mean, they're the mm -hmm. most common interface is you spend most time with your faculty. 
Um, so faculty need to be educated and be able to answer questions since they are sort of the frontline um, communicators with students. I just want to let our listeners know that uh, we're working to have uh, UConn administrators come on for an upcoming show to talk about how the campus is reopening. Uh, we have requests out for either UConn President Katsileas or uh, the new provost, and we hope to have an update for our listeners in just a couple of weeks. Uh, Dr. Sherry Pagato, it's been really interesting speaking with you about these focus groups. Uh, before we let you go, um, as a, a member of the faculty, how are you feeling personally about uh, starting uh, the campus, uh, having it reopened? open and, and starting up this fall? Well, you know, obviously, there's a little bit of nerves there. You know, this is uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. No one knows what's going to happen. And so, you know, we're opening cautiously. And so I can't say that I'm not nervous, a little bit nervous about it. Um, and I just hope that, you know, I, I'm encouraged that the numbers have been pretty good in Connecticut. And so the stage is probably one of the better stages around the country in order to, to even think about a reopening. But I, I don't think anybody isn't nervous a little bit at the very least to say the least. Mm. Dr. Sherry Pagato, again, as a UConn professor in the Department of Allied Health Sciences and also a clinical psychologist. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to shift our focus and find out how the Hartford Public Library is working to update the traditional historical narrative of the capital city. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. When you think about the history you were taught in school, how often did the lessons focus on the contributions of Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities? Hartford resident Jasmine Augusto is working on a summer project at the Hartford Public Library to change the narrative residents and others most often hear when thinking of prominent figures in the city's history. It's called the Hartford Changemakers Summer Program, and we wanted to learn more. Uh, Jasmine joins us now by phone. She's also education and community outreach manager at the Hartford History Center at the Hartford Public Library. Jasmine, welcome to our show. Hello, good morning. So tell me, before we begin and learn about change makers, I wanted to learn a little bit about your passion for the history of the city that you grew up in. Uh, tell me about uh, when uh, uh, you really started to get interested in, in Hartford's history. Sure. Um, so just as you said, um, actually, I went to Conard High School in West Hartford and I remember taking a U.S. history class my junior, senior year, and um, immediately being drawn to, like, I probably only really remember the few sections in the textbook about the civil rights movement. And it was just like a a few key figures that we always hear about, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks. um, And I was still hungry. You know, I was still excited and hungry for more. And it wasn't really until I went to college, Trinity College, and took a class called Hartford on Film, my freshman year of college, um, that I got exposed to this amazing collection of 1969 footage from Hartford that delved um, into the housing issues, um, urban renewal, police community relations, education, and it was told by the perspective 
um, of Black and Puerto Rican residents in the city of Hartford at that time, 1969, kind of an explosive moment. It was like three summers of riots that happened. Um, the city was, was really changing. Um, a lot of, um, you know, white folks were moving to the suburbs and um, Hartford was really starting to become a majority black and brown city. Um, and, and there was something in that for me that was just like so exciting to see more of, I guess, my community members um, be part of what was happening in the city, what was challenging in the city, and also like how they were looking to claim space culturally and develop their own social services. Mm-hmm. When we think about updating this traditional historical narrative that many people have of Hartford, how do you begin, Jasmine, and how do you get people engaged, especially uh, during the summer in a pandemic? This is a huge challenge. <laughs> um, gratefully, we've um, been, you know, developing relationships. This this summer program is um, a collaboration between a few different departments in the Hartford Public Library. So the Hartford History Center, um, and we have a lot of relationships with some of the elders in our city, especially because um, we've done some oral history projects um, and, you know, continue to d- kind of develop those relationships and build intergenerational programming. So some of that was like phone calls to folks and text messages along with emails. Um, the U Media Teen Center that really you know focuses on teens in our city, um, Nigel White um, is a program coordinator there and has also a relationship with a lot of the teens um, and teen uh, mentors. Um, and then Liz Castle, who's heading up general programming at the Hartford Public Library, um, ha- also has a-, a relationship with a lot of um, elders and adults um, through the intergenerational programming that she runs. So kind of through our forces combined and our social media and our personal connections, we've been able to kind of engage a, a wide uh, variety of folks in our city. It's still not enough. There still needs to be um, a lot more folks that get involved, but this is kind of what we're able to do right now with what we've got. Um, we've also put up signs in the locations of where we are going to be developing um, murals mm-hmm. to get fo- you know, to give folks a number and a, and a website that they can go to if they want to learn more. I love the public art aspect of this program. Before we get to that, uh, you know, I started the show mentioning when people think of prominent figures in Hartford, they think of Mark Twain and Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, what are some of the, who are some of the people that you hope to highlight uh, within this summer program? Oh my goodness. We have like, over 40. We've developed um, a library guide or a subject guide that's online um, of a number of Hartford historical change makers. Um, this, this, oh my goodness, there's so many. Um, but I would love to just point out that so many of our folks are like, have done multiple different types of contributions to the city. Um, so they are artists, they are politicians, they have worked in developing housing, developing travel agencies. Um, you know, they were leaders of, of faith institutions. Um, so there's so many different kinds of folks. So one I was going to point out is Bessie Prophet, who a lot of folks don't really know about. She was born in 1898. She passed in 1973. She was um, Hartford's, they say Hartford's first lady of jazz. She had more mm-hmm. than a 50-year singing career. 
um, that really started in the 1920s. Um, and what I love about her um, is that she was not just like this incredible singer and went in and out of both white and black um, circles as a singer, but she also was passionate about all folks accessing the joy of music and hosted performances in Connecticut prisons with inmates. Um, and not only, you know, she was also a, a civic leader and she was one of the founding members of the Citizens Committee of the North End and raised the initial thousand dollars that went to the George A. Parker Memorial Center, which is today one of our, you know, important rec centers in the north end of the city. Mm. That's really interesting. I'd love to have you back and we can just go through all of the, the different <laughs> uh, people that you're highlighting, Jasmine. But let's talk about the public art aspect of this. Uh, again, the Hartford uh, Changemakers Program uh, within the summer, um, how you're getting teens and adults and muralists together and uh, where they'll be unveiling these murals. Sure. So, uh so the murals are definitely the central part um, or one of the an important aspects of the summer program. We're going to be having one um, at Melanin in the North End, right on um, Blue Hills and Albany Ave, which is right near our Albany Library. Um, and then we have the second one in on Park Street um, near our Park Library, both our old and our new one. Um, and it's in a, a little like kind of lot of land and, and like building wall buildings um, over there called the Art Box, which was a, a community project um, by folks in the neighborhood to kind of like create a little community oasis within um, Park Street, um, an outdoor location. And so um, the murals are actually, as we speak, being developed, designed by an intergenerational group, both from the north and south ends of the city. Um, they're going to be looking at a number of the change makers and kind of deciding who they want to portray, um, who they're really interested in. Um, our LibGuide includes reference materials, includes footage of some folks. Um, and then what's also exciting about this is that because it's an intergenerational group and there's elders that are part of this process, um, they'll also be helping us kind of to illuminate um, these stories a little bit more, you know, not just kind of the articles that were written about mm -hmm. these folks, but the, um, you know, who they really were to as mentors, as people to look up to. And so we're hoping that the murals will portray not just, you know, portraits, but a way for folks to be able to understand how those folks contributed to the city visually. Um, and and uh, we're hoping to also include, you know, a little bit more information um, alongside the mural so that you could walk by, get more information, get a link to, to find even more information about folks. Um, those will be revealed at the end of the summer program. So we're looking at August 22nd and 29th, which are both Saturdays. Um, and, and so there's definitely a virtual aspect of this, right? All of our workshops are virtually um, happening right now, but there is going to be a physical aspect in terms of painting. And so the muralists, the two head muralists, Linda Luz Carillo and Mina um, Echevarria, who are both um, Hartford born and bred, uh, actually, well, Linda grew up in Hartford. Um, they are um, going to be scheduling out, you know, sections of time so that like small groups with masks can paint um, the mural um, step by step um, a, a long period of time. And then during the the actual mural reveal will be a virtual program with both pre-recorded um, and like live aspects. Um, so we are going to be having not only the mural reveal, but we will be having folks doing poetry, music, dance, um, storytelling, and also showcasing 
our documentary photographers, because um, there's also a documentary photography workshop. So really we're trying to show um, not only about these historical figures, but about how folks in the city are talking about their own stories, about sharing their own neighborhood stories. And um, we really are placing value on community knowledge um, and community storytelling. Well, this sounds great, Jasmine. We know that art can connect people from all different backgrounds. And when we throw history into it, it's making it more accessible to more people. Uh, we can't wait to see uh, what your workshop participants create, I think, in September when you mentioned uh, they'll be unveiled. Uh, Jasmine, we'd love to have you back. Jasmine Augusto, Education and Community Outreach Manager for the Hartford History Center at the Hartford Public Library. For our listeners who want to learn more about the Hartford Changemakers Program, Jasmine, where can they go online? So you can go to our website, hplct.org. You'll see like a banner um, on the front part of the page that will lead you to a link. You can also go to the programs and exhibits tab. um, And then you can also click on Hartford History Center and find our catalog, which will have our subject guides that includes the Hartford um, Changemakers link to the LibGuide that I was talking about earlier. And we'll be sure to link that to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Jasmine, thanks for coming on today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Learn more more, more about the show. Just download where we live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.